Before we get started, I wanted to go back to the beginning of last episode when we were talking about the Cecil Hotel show that we were watching on Netflix. We were talking about how we had read some bad reviews and we're kind of skeptical about it. So we're we're like three episodes in now. Yeah. And I thought, I think it's better than what I thought it would be. Yeah, I think it's getting better and actually going through with the story than, I feel like the first episode kind of got repetitive, but maybe it's because I like knew the information. Yeah, I was kind of concerned with that first episode because it was—it felt like one of those shows where they have a four-hour story that they could have told in an hour. Yeah. But it has been interesting. I wish they would talk more about the other things that have happened in the hotel. Yeah, because there's like a lot of history that they could easily go through and expand more on things about the Cecil. Yeah, because even though it's been good, I don't know if her story deserves four hours. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just because like it kind of made the Cecil famous. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. Yeah, that's sad. Anyway, just want to mention that. What do you have tonight? So tonight I'm going to be talking about the chessboard killer. I kept saying cheeseboard in my notes. (laughs) You kept typing cheeseboard in your notes? Yeah, (laughs) instead of chessboard. (laughs) Um, Maybe I was hungry, but I don't know. They look so similar. Yes, yes, I do. Now now when I'm looking at, uh, I'll only see cheeseboard. Cheeseboard. (laughs) But Alexander Petrushkin, a.k.a. the chessboard killer, is a prolific Russian serial killer convicted of murdering 48 people with the goal of killing at least 64 people. Before I move any further, I'm going to say that because this is in Russia, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing a lot of these names, but I'm trying. I was pretty impressed that you were able to say... (laughs) 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 See, I can't say... Pachuskin? Yeah, Pachuskin. (laughs) I have it written now. That's the only way. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to surpass his idol, Andre Chikatilo. I don't know if I pronounced that. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Andre who? (laughs) Andre Chikatilo. I'm not even going to attempt that one. It sounds like an entree. (laughs) Kudos to you for doing this story. (laughs) I know. I I realized that I actually had to read this. (laughs) On April 9th, 1974, Alexander Petrushkin was born in the Russian part of the Soviet Union. He was a sociable child until he suffered a head injury from a swing around the age of four, causing a shift in behavior. He began to be hostile and impulsive and was often bullied at school. His mother eventually put him into a special needs school until his grandfather removed him from the school. He saw Petrushkin as intelligent. Petrushkin moved in with his grandfather and was taught how to play chess. He would play against the elderly men in Bitska Park. He was unfortunately still bullied by other students in his adolescence. Things took a turn when Petruskin's grandfather passed away, which devastated him and led to his vodka addiction. He returned home to his mother's but continued playing chess in Bitska Park. Eventually, he developed a sadistic hobby of creating videos of himself threatening children. He would watch the videos repeatedly to reaffirm his power, but the urges to kill weren't satisfied. That's bizarre. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever heard that word, making videos of himself threatening other people, it's especially just, kids. Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's weird. 
On July 27, 1992, around the time of Andre Chikatilo's trial, 18-year-old Petruskin committed his first murder. He planned on killing people with a friend, Mikhail Odichuk. He thought that Petruskin was only joking, and when he realized that he was being serious, he tried to back out of the situation. Petruskin struck his friend with a hammer and pushed his body into a well. Three days later, he was questioned by police about Uduchuk's death. There was some evidence pointing to his guilt, but nothing ever came out of the investigation. It ended up being declared a suicide. Petrushkin later said, this first murder, it's like first love. It's unforgettable. That's sick. Yeah. Suicide, really? Crushed skull? Well, if he went down a well. Still, you yeah. think they could tell the difference between him hitting his head on the way down and somebody bashing his head in with a hammer. Yeah. Petrushkin claimed to have committed another murder later in 1992. His girlfriend, Olga, had broken up with him and started dating his friend, Sergei. Petrushkin threw his romantic rival out a window. Sergei's death was declared to be a suicide. Another suicide. Yep. I guess that one makes more sense if he went out a window and no, like... Yeah, no, no proof or anything. Yeah. His murderous impulses were dormant for years until he began killing people in Bitsa Park in the early 2000s. He would often target elderly or homeless people. He would lure people to the park by offering a drink at his dead dog's grave. A bit of truth is that he did have a dog that he got after the passing of his grandfather and would often walk it in the park, although it is uncertain if the dog was actually buried there. He would wait until his victim was intoxicated and then would hit them repeatedly with a blunt object, often a hammer. He would throw them into a well to hide their bodies. Some were still alive but would end up drowning. That's interesting, the gap between his killing sprees. Yeah. Yeah, because that was like quite a few years there in between. It was like eight years or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Over time, he started leaving a broken vodka bottle sticking out of some victim's skulls and started leaving their bodies out in the open. On May 17, 2001, Petrushkin was in Bitsa Park playing chess with a man named Yevgeny Pronin. When the game ended, he invited Pronin to take a walk with him. Petrushkin told him it was the anniversary of his pet's death and that he wanted to visit his grave. Pronin accompanied him, and when they reached an isolated spot in the park, Petrushkin brought out a bottle of vodka and offered him a drink. The two men drank a toast to the dog before Petrushkin suddenly bludgeoned Pronin and dumped his body into a nearby well. In 2002, the body of a woman was found with metal stakes hammered into her brain. Petrushkin would later claim he had murdered Olga, his ex-girlfriend, and that the corpse was hers. However, this had never been confirmed. Maria Vercheva was one of the very few people lucky enough to survive Petrushkin. On February 23, 2002, he lured the pregnant saleswoman into Bitsa Park and pushed her into the same well where most of his victims were disposed of. When she clung to the sides, he held her by the hair and smashed her head against the concrete walls repeatedly before she fell. He left believing she was dead. She survived and managed to climb out of the well, and thankfully the baby was okay. Vercheva reported the crime to the police, but since she was an illegal immigrant, she was forced to drop her claim that Petrushkin had attempted to kill her. What? Yeah. Well, so, first of all, a tough woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was able to survive that. And what the hell? You know, a pregnant woman? And just because she was an illegal immigrant, which I think is messed up. You know, I, I struggle with, obviously, killing anybody is, is horrible. Yeah. But then there's these levels, right? Like a pregnant woman. Yeah. You know, obviously, uh, children are just, I mean, it just, 
I don't, I don't know why. It, it's weird because you would think it's just all bad. Yeah. You know, it's all stomach churning, disgusting. But when you hear s- certain things, I don't know why it triggers an even higher response. I think it might be just because you realize how sadistic people can be. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, go back to just because she was an, an immigrant, they wouldn't pay attention to her claims that this guy tried to kill her. Yeah, no. That's crazy. It's messed up and it's sad. Another survivor was a teenage skater named Mikhail Lobov. On March 10th, 2002, after being led by Petrushkin into Vitsa Park with the promise of cigarettes and vodka, he was struck over the head and pushed down the well. Thinking that the boy was dead, Petrushkin left the scene. Lobov's jacket had gotten caught on a piece of metal inside the well, saving him from falling into the icy waters. He was able to climb out. Wow, that was lucky. Yeah. On November 15, 2003, a neighbor, Konstantin Polykarpov, was invited for a drink in Vitsa Park. Petrushkin bludgeoned him with a hammer three times before throwing him into the well. Again, he left assuming that his victim was dead. Polykarpov successfully climbed out, but he suffered head trauma, causing him to remember nothing about the attack. It's amazing how he's killing so many people he knows. Yeah. Yet nobody's putting two and two together. Yeah, it's... Crazy. Yeah. The police began to take the murders more seriously when a former policeman named Nikolai Zakarchenka turned up dead. November 16, 2005, his body had been left out in the open this time instead of the usual dump in the well. Petrushkin had started to become cocky by leaving bodies out in plain sight, but he was still careful enough to avoid capture. Totally disgusting that they took it more seriously after one of their own died. Yeah. Like, they didn't take it seriously when it was a teenager. They didn't take it seriously when it was a pregnant lady. But the second it's one of their own, that's when it matters more to them. Yeah, that's crazy. Petrushkin committed his final murder on June 14, 2006. Marina Moskalyova worked at the same store where another woman, Larissa Kulagina, had worked before suddenly vanishing. Turns out that Kulagina had also been killed by Petrushkin on April 12th. They were co-workers. Kulagina's strange disappearance did not seem to phase Moskalyova. She took a walk with her co-worker into Bitsa Park, where he then struck her with a hammer. What Petrushkin did not know was that shortly before going with him, Moskayova had left a note for her son, telling him where she was going and who she was with. The note also contained his phone number. The boy called Petrushkin, who told him that he had not seen his mother. Obviously suspicious, the boy informed his father about this, who then proceeded to call the police. Another thing Petrushkin was unaware of was that Moskayova's clothing contained a metro ticket. CCTV footage from the station where she had bought the ticket was reviewed, which displayed Petrushkin walking alongside her. Two days later, he was arrested. Amazing it took that long. Yeah, but also that, I mean, it's unfortunate that it didn't save her, but it's also great that she had left information who she was going with. Yeah. And having the ticket on her too. One particular piece of evidence against Petrushkin was the fact that he kept a logbook around. The logbook contained 64 squares inside, much like a chessboard. Each square represented someone who was killed. 62 had been filled in, which was later lowered to 60 when Petrushkin learned that two of his victims had survived. Out of the alleged 60 murders, 48 were confirmed. 
According to Petrushkin, he idolized Andrei Chikatilo, another serial killer who committed horrific killings in Russia. He stated that his goal was to surpass his idol's confirmed body count of 52 victims by murdering 64 people, representing the number of squares on a chessboard. Petrushkin also said that even if he did reach 64 murders, he would kill more people unless he was stopped. Wow. The police were only able to charge Petrushkin with 51 counts of murder and three counts of attempted murder. His confession was aired on Russian TV. He had said, For me, a life without murder is like a life without food for you. He showed no remorse and actually asked the Russian court to add more victims to his body count, claiming he had killed 61 or 63 people. He stated, I thought it would be unfair to forget about the other 11 people. During his trial, he was kept in a glass cage for his own protection. On October 27, 2007, Petrushkin was convicted of 48 murders and three attempted murders. The judge took an hour to read the verdict, which was life imprisonment with the first 15 years to be spent in solitary confinement. Due to the nature of the murders, Russians considered reinstating the death penalty. In 2016, a woman known only as Natalia visited him, and the two actually ended up getting married. In 2016? Mm-hmm. We've talked about the whole thing about people in prison getting married, which is absolutely crazy, especially yeah. with somebody like that. But he was convicted in 2007, and the first 15 years were supposed to be in solitary confinement, which would take it until 2022. Mm -hmm. How the hell did he get a visitor and get married? I have no idea. That is so stupid. Yeah, it, it was... I know it has like nothing to do with the murders, but because we had talked about the fact that these serial killers are getting married in prison. Yeah, it's like, how much rights do they get? Yeah, I don't. But uh, on social media, I want to put a list of the victims' names and ages. Out of respect of them, I do not want to mispronounce their names, and I believe they should be recognized. So I'll put that out on social media. Going back to the, the statement that he made about killing was to him like food is to us. Yeah. I guess it's saying people we just cannot wrap our heads around that statement. It's a pretty bizarre statement. Well, he's making it seem like he can't survive without it. Well, right. Which maybe he feels he can't. And that's what I'm saying is saying people we can't wrap our heads around. Yeah. Somebody that is so psychotic that that's their normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Ugh. it's really upsetting and it's scary to think that people have that mindset some people have that mindset yeah it's scary that you could run across somebody that has no conscience yeah no ability to feel remorse yeah and yeah no qualms about doing whatever to you and it's terrifying because usually they'll act like they have all those things because they're mimicking the people around them yeah yeah, yeah. it's scary sad sickening I know you mentioned one time about the question of how many people have we run across in our lives that were potential or were serial killers. Yeah. Like passed them in a store or in line with them in a store or something like that. I always wonder, like, I know this is bad, but I'm just like a very overly cautious person. I don't know if I would be overly because I guess it's better safe than sorry. But I always like wonder how many times I was almost like the victim of something, but like something caused them to change their mind. Because yeah. you hear stories like that too. Yeah, that's a scary thought. Yeah, you hear, you hear the stories of the serial killers that were focused on somebody and then something happened for them to change their mind. Yeah. Or somebody came along and interrupted their plans or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. Scary world out there. Yeah. So that was it.
that was it. Like I said, I want to put the victims' names and ages because we didn't get to talk about all of them because there's a lot. Yeah. I was going to read off their names, but I really did not want to mispronounce them and disrespect them that way. I didn't think they deserved that. Yeah. But I do want them to be recognized. That's gruesome. Yeah. So after that, what do you have for us? Well, I thought I would talk about spontaneous human combustion. Uh, or SHC, if you want to sound really. Oh, I didn't know there was an abbreviation. <laughs> <laughs> everything has an. I guess everything has an acronym, <laughs> acronym if you make it yeah. an acronym. Uh, so just a little definition. Spontaneous human combustion is the combustion of a human body, living or recently deceased, without an apparent external source of ignition. It really answers it because I, you know, I was kind of debating whether to do this because, you know, this is one of those things that has been around for a long time. Yeah. You know, and as time's passed, people have become more and more skeptical of the validity of whether it's actually a thing or not. Yeah. But I was kind of surprised at how much information there was out there and how, how much argument there is one way or another. Yeah, because I feel like you don't really hear it that much, like hear much about it. Yeah, yeah, you you don't. Every now and then you'll hear it, and yeah, it's not a thing. It's just all fake or whatever. Yeah. But digging into it, there is actually quite a bit of information out there. And I was actually surprised at how many cases I found. There were a couple I dismissed because the details on one were kind of fishy. Yeah. You know, kind of unbelievable a little bit. And then the other one came across multiple sources, but the story changed quite a bit with every source. So I was thinking that maybe it was more of an urban legend type of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. So I skipped those, but I did find four that I want to go over. uh, And then I want to kind of get your take on the stories. Okay. One of the earliest recorded cases is that of Grace Pett from Ispwich, England in 1744. That's really early. Yes. And I imagine there's earlier ones, but this is, you know, like I said, one of the earliest I ran across. Yeah. After going upstairs to bed with her daughter, Grace would often go back down by candlelight to smoke her pipe by the hearth. Grace did just that on April 9th while her daughter slept upstairs. Grace was not considered a heavy drinker, but one of her daughters had come home from Gibraltar and Grace was said to have indulged quite heavily in the gin that day. When her daughter came downstairs the next morning, she found her mother's body sprawled on the floor near the hearth, the torso smoldering. It was described as appearing like a smoldering block of wood, glowing without flame. So it was like still still ignited, but not like... Well, I'll get to this next description, you know, kind of. These descriptions for this one were kind of bizarre. Okay. Her, Her daughter poured two bowls of water on the body, trying to put her mother out. Yeah. The trunk was burned so badly, it was again described as looking like one of those charcoal, one of those charcoal (laughs) briquettes with the white ash coating. So, you know, you're barbecuing outside and you have the charcoal in there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's burning, but there's no flame. That's what they described. Her mother was actually smoldering. Interesting description. Yeah. Yeah. they, They got a little... Detailed. Detailed in their descriptions. but Her head, arms, and legs were burned, but nowhere near as badly as her torso. The grate had no fire in it, and the candle was burnt out. 
Nearby items such as paper and clothing items were not burned, and the wood floor beneath her legs was not damaged. But her body fat was so badly burned into the hearth, it couldn't be cleaned. Ew. Yes. I cannot imagine seeing that. Yeah, they are they're quite disturbing. Some of the pictures are pretty disturbing, too, just... There's pictures? Yeah, there is. Definitely for this next one is, uh, I think it's this next one, one of the more famous ones. Uh, and there's a picture of the remains. On the morning of December 5th, 1966, meter reader Don Gosnell let himself in to Dr. John Irving Bentley's home. He had permission to do so because of the 92-year-old Bentley's health. Wow. Going down to the basement to read the gas meter, Gosnell said he noted a sweet smell and a light blue smoke. Investigating, he found a pile of ashes and looking up, saw a hole in the floorboards above. Going upstairs, he found Bentley's remains in the bathroom. Wait, I want to go back to a sweet smell. This is very disturbing. This is the only one I mentioned that in, but I did read that in, in other in other stories that the witnesses or people who came across it noted a sweet smell. I don't know how you get that from a body that was burnt. Maybe it was the, the fat. I don't know. Oh, man. All that was left of Bentley was the lower portion of his right leg and foot with his slipper still on. That's the picture they have of his bathroom. He had this walker that was overturned, laying over the hole in the floor. Just a portion of his leg Ew. and his foot and the slipper were laying on the floor next to the ashes. Really bizarre. That's so weird. The rubber tips on the walker were still intact, and the nearby bathtub was barely scorched. Hmm. Bentley did smoke a pipe, and one theory was that he accidentally caught his clothing on fire, possibly waking up to it, and he went into the bathroom, but passed out before he could put out the fire. But it is said that his pipe was found still on the stand by his bed. Could it have been a spark? Like a little tiny spark? Yes. When I get into the theories about, yeah, sparks or... Sorry, I didn't mean to... No, that's fine. It should also be mentioned that he was said to have had the habit of carrying wooden matches in the pocket of his robe. Would that cause a fire, though? No, but, you know, again, theories that, you know, maybe the, the matches rubbing together, you know, caught on fire. That makes sense. Back to the pipe, just want to mention, because I don't know if you don't see too many pipes these days, but your great-grandfather smoked a pipe, and he had these wooden stands that the pipe set on. Yeah. Kind of like a display stand, but I think it was more that when they were done with them, somewhere to place them. Yeah. So that they, you know, wouldn't spill over. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. I didn't know they had stands. Yeah. That was the one note with Bentley that his pipe was sitting in the stand. So it wasn't like a rushed thing. Right. I wonder how people start smoking pipes. Yeah. Remember when I was in elementary school, the kids used to go to this abandoned warehouse underneath the dock. Yeah. After school and they'd they'd go under there and like smoke cigarettes and stuff. Huh. I wonder if like with your grandfather, they would go and they'd pull out their pipes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that just sounds like more you have to carry around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, weird anyway. The next one was 51-year-old Helen Conway of Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, who was babysitting her two grandchildren on November 6, 1964. 
At some point, a neighbor noticed smoke coming from the house and entered the home, managing to save the children, but was unable to get to Helen's bedroom. Firefighters found Helen's upper body and a portion of an armchair she was sitting in reduced to ashes. The corner wall behind the chair was scorched. Although her head, arms, and abdomen were completely consumed, her legs and feet were still intact but covered in blisters. Most of the bedroom was untouched by the fire. This was another one with a picture where there's like two legs, feet and legs laying there and nothing else. Oh my gosh. It's really... So there was an actual fire, but it's just suspicious that it's not like... Yeah, so these people actually burned. There was a fire. Their bodies were cremated, basically. Yeah. But most everything around their bodies was undamaged. Hmm. Michael Faraday lived in County Galway, Ireland, and was 76 at the time of his death. Early on December 22, 2010, Faraday's neighbor, Mr. Mannion, was awakened by the sound of a smoke alarm. He discovered the smoke was coming from Faraday's house, and the fire brigade, <laughs> fire brigade was called. <laughs> Faraday's body was found lying on his back, his head closest to an open fireplace, but a red forensics showed that the fire in the fireplace was not the same as the kind that burned Faraday. Whatever that means, I don't know. Well, I know there's like different types of fire, but like, how? Yeah. The only fire damage was to the body, the floor below, and the ceiling above him. There was no trace of accelerant and nothing to suggest foul play. And this one is interesting because the cause of death was recorded by the coroner, Dr. Syrian McLaughlin, as spontaneous combustion. So they actually put that down. Yeah, that's that's what I read. And I've got a couple of sources on that. but That's weird. I didn't know that was like a thing that they could put down as like a valid cause of death. That's the only one that I read where they actually put that down as cause of death. Well, do you know what they put down? Like if they put down anything for the other ones? They just say like die by fire? I remember reading a couple of the other causes of death. It wasn't spontaneous combustion, but it was death by fire or asphyxiation by smoke or something like that. Uh -huh. I mean, what else can they put? There's no body left, so. Any thoughts on those stories? I just think it's like, they're suspicious, like not want to like invalidate any people's like stories, but I don't know. I have my suspicions on it, but it's like a lot of them are around fire. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's one of the biggest arguments, right? I would say that one of the strangest things that we talked about a little bit was, you know, there's there's this fire that's so intense that it's able to cremate somebody, even yeah. down to their bones, yet the surrounding area is relatively unharmed. Yeah. So that's suspicious, right? Well, I'm also curious, was it like an actual fire? Because like, there were no flames for firefighters to put out, right? So like, right, well, that's the thing is they, they burned. Yeah. Obviously, there was some type of fire. Yeah. That they were burned to ashes, but then the fire went out. Yeah. So it didn't catch on to anything else in the, in the area. So that's kind of sus suspicious, but you're right. They, they found, or they, you know, most people who die by spontaneous combustion are heavy drinkers, suggesting that they, you know, they might have passed out and they couldn't wake up. Yeah. They're smokers or they're around the fireplace or they had a candle or whatever. Yeah. You know, they, they argue that there's no evidence 
they had a cigarette, it caught them on fire, but you know, there's no evidence because the cigarette burned along with them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, that, I could see somebody, you know, drops their cigarette and it burns and it's laying on them and, and they burn to ashes. But I think it's also just as likely as they would drop the cigarette and it would roll roll away from them. Well, also, if they're investigating, wouldn't they be able to like determine within the ash what burn? Isn't that what they do? I don't know if a, like a cigarette or whatever ends up as ash and then you have a pile of human ashes if they could possibly determine what the difference is. Yeah, because like there are chemicals and stuff in a cigarette that I imagine could be... But I'm, guessing, I, I'm not a firefighter, so I don't know. Guessing they don't spend that much time investigating it. Also with the with Bentley, you know, like like we were talking about, his pipe was in the holder. Yeah. So it is possible that he he accidentally caught fire, like from a spark. You were you were mentioning before from a spark from that. Yeah. But then he put the pipe back in the holder before he got his walker to get himself to the bathroom to try to put the flames out. That's true. It just seems kind of weird, right? I guess unless, like, he was worried about it, like, catching anything else on fire. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's the biggest argument, though, right? And I can I can see that. I can understand that. Yeah. Right? So, because I also read that, you know, one of the cases that they were finding cigarette burns all around the house. So, that, that proved that the person was chronically careless. Yeah. So, it seems likely that they caught themselves on fire. Or the argument of the spark from a cigarette or a fireplace, hot ash or whatever, floats and catches on somebody's clothes and then they, they burn up. You know, maybe they're drunk and they couldn't wake up or whatever. Yeah. But following that logic, you would think that there would be a lot more cases. That's true. Considering all the fireplaces and heavy drinking smokers there are in the world. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. One of the arguments for why the person is cremated but the surroundings are relatively untouched is a theory called the wick effect, which is like an inside-out candle where the person's clothing are like the wick of a candle. Yeah. And their melting body fat is like the wax of a candle. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it, it's soaking up the wick. Their clothes are soaking up the fat yeah. and burning at this, you know, intense temperature in this confined area, but it isn't spreading. You know? Yeah. So I don't I was going to ask if they tested this theory, but I don't know how you safely do that, especially if the theory is that it's a human candle, basically. There's actually, I, I should have got the notes here. There was actually somebody, again, as like I was saying, there could really go and do uh, like a full episode of this. Yeah. Somebody did a test with a pig corpse. Oh. I don't know how the pig died in order hopefully to natural. do the test. Yeah, hopefully it was natural causes. But to prove this theory of the wick. Did they dress the pig up? Yeah, <laughs> they put clothes on him and then... Oh, wow. And it, I mean, it, it, again, it does seem like a valid theory. Yeah. But in all the arguments for, you know, why this isn't a thing, you know, they're always talking about the scientific reasons, but they never bring up the possibility of paranormal forces being involved. Oh, yeah. Right? So, yeah, you can make arguments of why this person might have burned up or how it's not possible for somebody to burn up. You know, there's nothing inside of us that could possibly start combustion yeah. on a body that's 60% water. But, you know, I figure if the demon or the devil wants you to burn, <laughs> he's going to make you burn. I was thinking, like, witches putting a hex on people. That too, right? Yeah. I just think it's like... 
interesting how I understand wanting to find like a logical reasoning behind it, but how it seems kind of like they're just completely dismissing spontaneous combustion. Well, I think it's just obviously you're going to have people who are, you know, just now this isn't this is impossible. You know, they're not going to consider anything that they can't prove scientifically or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get that. But it's just like if you look at the evidence, you have to admit that it's like really suspicious. Right. Especially if there's like photo evidence and all that. Yeah, it's it's weird because, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of in the middle of a lot of these stories. Yeah. I, I'm just I'm not totally just as this is an example. I'm not totally buying into spontaneous combustion, but I'm not saying that it, it's not possible. Yeah. Because I see some of the arguments and I say, okay, yeah, I can see where you're coming from, but you're also not considering some other factors. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like iffy, like in between whether like being spontaneous combustion or there being an actual scientific reasoning. I, I think the, yeah, the cigarette smoking and the open flames near the people is very suspicious. Yeah. But I also believe that going in and finding a pile of ashes where somebody was and the house didn't burn down yeah. with them is pretty bizarre as well. It's also interesting that no one's like witnessed it happening. Or there, are there witnesses? Well, I, I did read a couple of cases where there was a person who whose arm, you know, there was like three people in the room and one person's arm caught on fire, right? And they put it out. Again, flames in the area did, you know, a spark yeah. catch them on fire, so... Yeah, maybe I should have convinced you to do just an episode on this and I could have gotten into all of these details because, yeah. like I said, it, it does get pretty involved. I was kind of amazed at really how much information there is out there. Yeah. One, how many cases that there were. Yeah. I never realized. Well, we can still do an episode on it. We'll come back to that. <laughs> there was one more story that I have to tell you. I was like a cat. <laughs> how do you know these because... things? <laughs> <laughs> The way you said it. I only have one source on this, but I couldn't pass up the story. Peppy the cat. Pappy? Peppy. Peppy? Peppy. P-E-P-P-I. Oh. (laughs) Peppy the cat in January of 1987 lived her life in a nursing home. I'm not sure if she was a pet or a resident. (laughs) (laughs) I'll assume that she was the pet. Yeah. Where she is said to have burst into flames in front of the residence. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, you know, know, cats cats don't get near flames and stuff and catch their fur on fire at any time. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't suspicious at all. I've never seen that happen before. Yeah. (laughs) But sad Peppy the cat was the victim of spontaneous human combustion. (laughs) (laughs) Human. (laughs) Or SCC. Spontaneous cat combustion. Yeah. Or would be F- SFC, spontaneous feline combustion. <laughs> or SAC, spontaneous animal combustion. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know which, but it's sad. Oh. Poor Peppy. R.I.P. Peppy. And the, uh, and the victims of the chessboard killer. I almost said cheeseboard killer. Cheeseboard. Uh, yeah. It's all sad. That's all I have. Very heartbreaking stories tonight. Yes. Anything else? I don't think so. 
Alrighty then. Well, I guess we'll have to come back to spontaneous combustion at some point since I came into this episode with a half-baked story. Oh my... No! (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you once again for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.